0: Father, even on a gray day, we're thankful for the beauty of your reality. No matter what our circumstance or what may be the conditions of the environment, we know, Lord, you are always there. You are ever faithful. And this encourages us, and especially as we look through the passages of Scripture this morning and study about the God who was there and the God who cares for those who have need, and Lord, that's every one of us. And we acknowledge you today. We're grateful for your blessing, your provision for us each and every day. The fact that we even have life is because of your uh, love and your kindness to us all. And Father, we're grateful for the rain and the snow which is falling. And we know, Lord, that each day we need to be thankful for even the, what seemed like to be the little things. Uh, but we know, Lord, you care for all things and you care for us. And so, Lord, as we look at this passage of Scripture this morning, we trust you to instruct us and to give us that understanding which is more than just understanding of facts and details, but of the truth, the eternal truth that is written in these pages. In Christ's name, amen. Genesis chapter 16, I'd like for us to again read the last half of the chapter as we finish that section this morning. Genesis chapter 16, beginning at verse 7. Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to shore. And he said, Hagar, Saris' maid, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing from the presence of my, of my mistress, Sari. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit yourself to her authority. Moreover, the angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your descendants so that they, they shall be too many to count. The angel of the Lord said to her further, behold, you are with child and you shall bear a son and you shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has given heed to your affliction. He will be a wild donkey of a man his hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him. And he will live to the east, or literally in the face of, his bro- of all his brothers. Then she called the name of the Lord, who spoke to her, Thou art a God who sees. For she said, I have even remained alive here after seeing him. Therefore the well was called Berlehairoi. Behold, it is between Kadesh and Barad. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. And Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. We have studied the first part of this chapter and noted that because of their own finagling, moving to try to work God's will in human strength, Uh, Hagar was pregnant by Abram. And because of Hagar's, what shall we call it, Uh, her sense that she had worth now because she was pregnant and her mistress had little or no worth, as a woman and as a wife anyway, uh, Hagar was not walking in obedience to her mistress. And not only that, she was acting in an arrogant way towards her. And so Sarai became very upset. She blamed Abram for the whole problem, and he said, well, do with Hagar whatever you want. And so the scripture says she treated Hagar harshly. And as I mentioned to you, the meaning of the word, it's the same word that we find in Exodus when it says that the Egyptians oppressed the Hebrews. So we're talking about a pretty serious oppression here. I mean, harshly doesn't mean she just yelled at her. Probably there was physical abuse involved in some way too. So Hagar fled into the wilderness. And she, as we noted last week, was on the inner route, the more inland route towards Egypt. And uh, after several days, three to four days, she stopped at this well, probably one of the last wells available for a period of many miles out across the northern Sinai. And there, uh, depressed, uh, discouraged, uh, very, very exhausted, she collapsed by the well, and that's when God appeared to her. You know, the Scripture tells us the angel of the Lord. And we noted several other passages in Scripture which indicate quite clearly that this is a theophany, an appearance of God in uh, some form, possibly angelic form, uh, since the word angel of the Lord is used here. But it doesn't say specifically And we noted that here at her her moment of, of greatest need, God appeared to her. And that is just a characteristic of God. That's an attribute of God to meet us at our moment of need. He always does and he always will. And he made this promise that she should bear a son and this son would be the progenitor of a large nation of people. Uh, we read a little bit of the description last time, and it didn't sound real encouraging that he was going to be a wild donkey of a man, and that basically uh, he would be against everybody, and everybody would be against him. that doesn 't sound like exactly your your typical child. well, maybe it does sometimes, but it 's really a situation that uh, she was thankful for though, that God had promised her this son, and she of course didn't know all the ramifications. Of these words at the time that they were given to her. It's important, I think, for us to note what kind of impression the angel of the Lord made upon Hagar that day. And it's indicated in the passage here where uh, she gives to him a name in verse 13. She says, then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, thou art a God who sees. And the uh, meaning, it, the actual wording there in the Hebrew is a God named El Roy. El Roy means the God who sees. And by this, you'll note in your outline, she had at least two meanings. By this, she meant that he was the God who sees and that he allowed himself to be seen and allowed her to remain alive after seeing him in in whatever form he manifested himself. And I think uh, the, it's clear here, she was totally amazed at this. She knew enough about the majesty of God because of her, her own native uh, uh, superstition, I suppose you could say, but the fact she had dwelled for all these years in the house of Abram and come to understand something of the God that Abram worshipped, she was just really flabbergasted that a God of such majesty and power would manifest himself to someone as lowly as, as just a little egyptian handmaid so impressed was she that the scripture tells us she named renamed the well whatever the name of the well had been before she renamed it abir lahai Roy, which means the well of the god or the living one who sees me huh. that was who knows how long that uh, well even bore that? Because certainly that would, well, not certainly, possibly, uh, that name would be uh, engendered into Abram if he believed her when she reported what happened here at the well. This was a life changing experience for this little lady. She returned to a very, very difficult circumstance. He said, Go back. She obeyed. She went back. She submitted herself to her mistress. It was going to be a trying time for her, because certainly is was going to continue to be harsh towards her in some ways. But of course, if her attitude changed, and she began to give respect to her mistress, as was proper, she probably could have reduced the amount of uh, oppression that she received. But now she had a personal presence. God would be with her. The presence of El Roy would be with her. And I think she could trust in that. Now, I think, of course, that the truth that comes out of this to us is that we also serve Elroy. We serve the God who sees. The God who sees us, the God who has allowed himself to be seen by us in the sense of seeing him in his word, in the majesty and power that is displayed there. Uh, you know, many times people feel that uh, they wish they could be at the time when God still appeared in the flesh or, you know, in angelic form or in a burning bush or however God appeared. But we are really blessed above those who have even had such a visual seeing of God because we have the total counsel of God's Word. And we can see Him as they could not. They could see a visible manifestation of Him and they could hear His voice and, and the truth was driven home to them. But the whole counsel of God, I mean, we have the whole thing. We have the story from the beginning to the end. And we know what God is intending to say to mankind at any time and at any place. And so we really are blessed above these ancients in that being true for us. And we can look back on them and and see what God has said. We often hear that hindsight is a whole lot better than foresight, right? And we have the hindsight here. We can look back and see what really was going on and what was the, the, uh, the reason behind the events that transpired. You know, why did Israel go into captivity in Babylon? A lot of them wondered. They didn't understand at all why they were going into captivity in Babylon, but we know why they went. We know why Assyria was allowed to come in and punish uh, Israel and destroy the city of Samaria they were in great confusion about the whole thing. They didn't need to be because the prophets made it very clear to them, but they were blind. But we can see and we can understand. And the same God is our God. He is the God who sees our fears and our tears. He sees our anxieties and our needs and our hurts. And he cares. It's really important for us to remember that, that he cares. Sometimes when something happens, we say, oh, God, don't you care? Yes, he cares. He cares far more than we care ourselves about the very situation. But he has a purpose in what he does and what he allows to happen. You and I have the indwelling spirit of Christ. If we're truly born again, Christ lives in us. And that is a blessing beyond that of those of the Old Testament. Hagar was astonished. And she was strengthened by the knowledge that the God who sees met her. And the God who sees said, go. And she believed that the God who sees would be with her. But I think we have every reason to be far more astonished and encouraged by the fact that we can believe because the word says it, that the Christ of the scripture dwells in, in us, in our, in our very being most of us are pretty aware of the big struggle that went on through history, particularly from the period of the Reformation on, with the various concepts of transubstantiation, consubstantiation, and uh, the idea of of the symbolism of of communion. And when you uh, think about all that, you know, you, the, the transubstantiation being the idea that God was, was actually in the, the blood, and, I mean, the wine and in the bread, and, and when it was blessed, it converts into the literal body and blood of Christ. And then Luther comes along and says, no, that's not what happens, but, the, but God is very really there. He's with the substance, but he doesn't change the substance. And so when you take communion, there's a very real presence of Christ in that. And then, of course, Zwingli and Calvin and others said, no, it's, it's just symbolism. It, it simply means that when we do this, we do this in remembrance of him, and, and God is not physically present in any way in the actual emblems themselves. And, you know, the, th- the battle still goes on. But you and I are well aware of the fact that Christ literally dwells within us, Uh, We're not changed into his body and his blood physically, but his spirit dwells within us and communes with our spirit. And there is a, a literal presence of Christ with us at all times. And that's why wherever we go, we can go in the strength of the Lord. And we can minister in the strength of the Lord. And this is the truth that God is making, even in this early passage of Scripture, real to even someone as this little Egyptian maid. A couple of passages in the New Testament I'd like to read that sort of, not sort of, but which drive home this point. Romans 8, verse 9. there's there's a battle going on, too, within certain evangelical circles about being filled with the Spirit versus being not filled with the Spirit for Christians. Verse 9, however, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of Christ dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. And if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him, who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, from the dead, will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who indwells you. It's really quite clear from Scripture that if we are a child of God, the Spirit of Christ dwells within us. That's how the new birth takes place. It is the Spirit of Christ who brings about the new birth, He is the one who regenerates, He's the one who gives us new life. So it's not possible to be a Christian and not be indwelled by the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. This This is really a prayer. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name that he will strengthen you according to the riches of his glory, to be, that he will grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Holy Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ Which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. This is, of course, the story of our lives as we walk in Christ. And as we walk with Him in faith, we become more and more filled with the fullness of God. And we never reach capacity, of course, on this planet. We never get to the point where we can walk around and just say every thought and every intent and every action and every word is God-guided and I sin no more. Uh, but we are on the path towards that. And God is working to, to gain control of this area and that area of our lives. And uh, at the time we pass off this planet, uh, we're far short of being perfect <laughs> in the sense that we have achieved sinlessness, because we cannot do that, but we have been perfected because of what Christ did on Calvary, and so we can pass into the presence of God spotless and blameless. Hagar would yet have another encounter with Elroy, and this this is recorded in the 21st chapter of Genesis, and uh, we will look at that, of course, somewhat later down the line. This second encounter, though, is important because it would reconfirm in her heart the truth that God cares for the people who hurt, and God cares for the people who are hurt by God's people. Sometimes God's people hurt other people. And God cares for those people, too. And again, I'm reminded of the fact that although you know, sometimes we, we do not remember people, We don't even know of the existence of some people, but with God, there are no forgotten people. God knows every single person on this planet. Even the newborn child in the jungles of New Guinea, God knows that person. And God cares for that person as much as he does for you or for me or for Billy Graham or for anybody else you can think of. And, and when we look at it that way, it really removes any cause for us to be arrogant or prideful about our position or what God has done for us or what we have done for God, you know. Hagar, I think, would be the epitome of someone who really didn't have any reason for pride because she was downtrodden and she was depressed and oppressed, and yet this great God met her, and it just changed her life. She did go back. She returned to Abram and Sarai. And the scripture tells us she did give birth. And you'll notice in the passage it says, Abram called his son Ishmael. Now why did Abram call his son Ishmael? I mean, after all, God had told her that was to be his son, uh, the the son's name. But what did a foreign concubine do? Uh, What kind of weight did she have with the chief of of a great clan? She couldn't go up to him and say, Now, Abram, when he's born, his name's going to be Ishmael. She couldn't do that. She was lowly. Uh, She had no right to make such a statement to him. We don't even know for sure whether she even related the encounter at Bilhairoi to Abram. I, I think she did, but Scripture doesn't say she did. And even if she did, there's no guarantee that Abram would believe her. Even though listening to what she said, uh, if you know he had any wisdom, he'd recognize what he had seen himself in his encounters with God to recognize that it was genuine. But whatever may be the case, certainly it was God who put it in his heart to name this boy Ishmael. That is, God hears, God sees. It's interesting that the very end of the verse, the very end of the passage it says, "And Abram was eighty six years old." Kind of keeping tabs on this guy. It helps us to uh, keep our chronology straight, particularly as we then look into the next uh, chapter. On your next outline, uh, we turn to the seventeenth chapter of Genesis, and we look at the fullest expression of the Abrahamic covenant as it has been given. Uh, fullest expression thus far. And of course, nailing it down in terms of the seal that was to be a part of it and the actual date of the birth of the one who would be the inheritor of the covenant and of the promise. Let me read uh, the first eight verses of chapter 17. Now, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, and I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. And Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I will make you the father of a multitude of nations, and I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come forth from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant, to be God to you and to your descendants after you. And I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession and I will be their god powerful promise now, i think the thing that leaps off the page very first thing to us is that we read in verse 16 of chapter 16 that abram was 86 and now we read that he's 99 we just leap over 13 years 13 silent years Thirteen years in which no details are given to us in, in Genesis about what took place. Interesting, is it not? Every once in a while you find such a gap in Scripture. Of course, the one we most often refer to was the 400 silent years between the end of Malachi and the beginning of the New Testament, where it seems as if God you know, was, quote, silent and didn't speak. But, of course, he did. He spoke specifically through his word. But uh, here we have 13 years in which, (laughs) look, think about it. Uh, They had gone ahead and uh, tried their own plan to to have a baby, and Ishmael comes along, and uh, God said, no, 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 it's not going to be that way. I'm going to give Sarai a son. (laughs) 13 years later, still no son. I mean, God's really uh, putting them to the test. God is teaching them patience, teaching them faith. And you think about that, how much we really need that, because we, um, I don't know how we compare to Abram, but, but I think as a, as a nation, we are a very impatient people. I, I think of, um, I don't know how many of you are familiar with some of the different characteristics in, in Brazil, but the two largest cities of Brazil are Sao Paulo and Rio. And uh, the difference between those cities is like the difference between day and night. And yet they're only, oh, what, two, three, four hundred miles apart. They're not really that far apart. But, um, so, uh, but Rio is a typical Latin American city, you know, kind of a mañana place. The, the people who live there are called Carioca's uh, because of the dance, you know, the Carioca. And uh, they are pretty laid back and, and, and no big hurry. But you just move down the road a little bit over to the west and you come to Sao Paulo. And, and it's like an American city. In fact, it's called the Chicago of Latin America. And everybody there is in a big hurry, and it all have to, has to be done yesterday. And, and they're literally like North Americans. They're like people from the U.S. and many people in Brazil. Think that very thought. You know, the Paulistas, they're like Americans, gringos, you know. <laughs> Yankees, uh, the way they live. They're, they're, in, they're so impatient in such a big hurry all the time. And uh, that's just characteristic of our society. I don't know. I suppose it carries over at least in part from our Puritan heritage or or whatever, where everything was done in neat and order and uh, according to uh, specific design. But uh, if you're in a big hurry and God's in the picture, you're probably going to get slowed down because God has a plan that doesn't always incorporate our impatience. And certainly he was teaching Abram and Sarai to be patient. I think Abram experienced a measure of pride as he saw Ishmael growing up. He would see this young man grow into his early teens. And, you know, this was his son. Even though he knew in his heart this was not the son of promise, because God had made that abundantly clear, that there would be one of his wife, Sarai, who would be that one. Now, think about it for a minute. In the 10 or 11 years, from the time he was 75 until he was 86, if you go back through this scripture, you'll discover that God appeared to Abram at least four times. And yet, in the past 13 that we discovered in that space in between the two chapter headings, there's no record that God appeared to him even once. I'm sure that must have been a little bit disturbing to Abram. But I believe he was living in comfort and prosperity there at Hebron. His herds were multiplying and his influence was spreading. He was a wealthy man. He was a highly respected man. And yet, in the midst of it all, his wife still bore the stigma of barrenness. And I think that was the really painful thing, even for Abram in it all. God now appears to him again, as we read in the 17 chapters. 99, and God again appears. Now, whether he appeared in a dream or a vision or in conscious reality, and and what form God appeared in, we can't really determine because it doesn't say here. But what is clear is that this is a visual manifestation of God because the verb used for appeared is the jewish or the hebrew verb for to see literally with the eyes so he appeared in a visual form is what the hebrew is telling us here now it's very very fascinating i think that uh, how god introduces himself he says i am el shaddai i'm god almighty now this is the first time this term is used in scripture So he's coming along and meeting Abram at this juncture in his life and introducing himself by another name. I mean, he'd known him as God Most High and he'd he'd known him as El, Elohim, and so forth. But now he is El Shaddai, God Almighty. And when you think about that, you, you know, this, this name will appear many more times in the New Testament. In fact, uh, 48 times altogether. By the very use of this name, God is telling to Abram that nothing is too hard for me. Now, why would he need to do that? Well, because he was 99, Abram was 99, and sorry, he was 89. And the writer of Hebrews says that they were all but dead. Good as dead, anyway, is what it says. Remember that passage? They were as good as dead. Now, what he meant was, of course, they were far beyond childbearing age. Because they would live a lot longer. Abram was only, well, he'd live another 76 years. So that's not quite with one foot in the grave and the other on the banana peel. And and his wife would live another, oh, 60 years nearly. So they were going to be around yet. But as far as childbearing was concerned they they had passed that time but this is God Almighty and nothing was too hard for him and that is how he introduced himself to Abram but then what does he do he says I am God Almighty walk before me and be blameless whoa That's seemingly an impossible command. Walk before me and be blameless. The Hebrew word is tamim here. And and the word means perfect, complete, spotless. If God were to appear to you and say, now I want you to walk the rest of your life spotless, how would you feel? You'd feel probably a lot like Abram must have felt, this is impossible. I can't do it. There's no way I can walk before you spotless, meaning sinless, that I can live the rest of my life without an evil thought and without an evil word and without an evil action or attitude. It seems like really an impossible command. But we have to put it within the context of Scripture because the Scripture teaches us that God knows that we are but what? Dust. He made us of the dust of the ground. We're, We're not made of some exalted material. We are made of debased material. And so what God is actually saying here to him, he's saying, live your life openly, sincerely, with integrity, according to the truth that I have revealed to you. See, he didn't have all the light yet. You and I have all the light God's going to give us right here in this book. But Abram didn't. He didn't have any of it. He had only what God had said in his appearances to him. He had none of the written word at all. Because, as you know, Moses wrote the first five books, the (coughs) Pentateuch, and Moses would not come along yet for a few hundred years. So he had none of it. So what God is saying is don't be hypocritical. Don't be double-minded. Keep your heart turned toward me no matter how many times you may fail. And this, to me, is the, is the key teaching of Scripture. From one end to the other, our heart's orientation is what counts. You and I will sin. You and I will fail. Abram would sin. Abram would fail. We know that because you just turn over a couple of chapters and he's off telling another king, no, she's my sister. You know, it sounds like something you we know, have deja vu, right? Right. I think you said this before once didn't you (laughs) but we have no reason to criticize have we Uh, I think God has told us a few things more than once too and I think we have failed in the same area more than once sometimes more times than we care to count and yet what God is saying is you will fail but you keep your heart toward me and I will count that as spotlessness blamelessness. I will impute that righteousness. I will p- impute that spotlessness to your account if you keep your heart turned towards me. What does it say in 1 John 1, 9? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. What did Jesus say to, to Peter when he said, well, shall I forgive him seven times? I'll be magnanimous here. No, 70 times seven, meaning ad infinitum. there's no limit to the number of times you must forgive those, which means, of course, that's a picture of God himself. If we confess, he forgives. It doesn't matter if we do it a thousand times or a million times, he's there because he has already imputed righteousness to our account. Abram was overwhelmed here as God appeared to him and says he fell on his face. How many times do we see that in scripture? <coughs> Even before angels, some fell on their face. And, you know, reading the description of the angel, it's no wonder uh, they did so. But in this particular case, God continued, of course, to minister to him. He was overwhelmed by this encounter with the Almighty One, El Shaddai, God the Almighty, with great compassion. And I think that has got to come through here. God spoke to him with, with great compassion. <clears throat> The love of God just exuded through these encounters towards Abram. How do we know that? Because Scripture says God is love. That's one of his great attributes. And when he shows up, his love is there. Not that this was a big, warm, fuzzy experience. It certainly wasn't. But he sensed the well-being here that God was emanating towards him. And with this great compassion, God reiterated his promise to make of Abram a great nation. And to emphasize this, God changed his name. Your name no longer will be Abram, that is exalted father. Your name now will be Abraham, meaning father of a multitude. What do you think about that? Here he is, still has no children by his wife. This promised son is not born, and he's going to be the father of a multitude. God has a real sense of humor. God even said, I'm going to bring forth kings from your seed. Kings will be descended from you. And of course, this would be fulfilled in the many kings of Judah and Israel. And and when you read through Samuel and uh, Kings and Chronicles, you get the story of these kings. And a lot of them, I'm sure if Abraham had known them personally, he'd said, I don't want to count those guys as my descendants. But nevertheless, it would, be, it would reach its fulfillment partially in David, of course, who would be the apple of God's eye, but more, most fully in the one who would be the son of David and the son of God, the Messiah. This would be the ultimate king who would come out of the seed of Abram. And then, of course, in this passage, God extends the Abrahamic covenant beyond Abram to his descendants. El Shaddai, would be the God of the children of Abraham, and the everlasting covenant which he established with Abram would be their covenant also. Let me turn to a reference to this in Psalm 105. Psalm 105, verse 8. He has remembered his covenant forever, the word which he commanded to a thousand generations, the covenant which he made with Abraham and his oath to Isaac. Then he confirmed it to Jacob for a statute and to Israel for an everlasting covenant, saying, To you I will give the land of Canaan as the portion of your inheritance, when they were only a few men in number, very few, and strangers in it. And they wandered about from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another people. He permitted no man to oppress them. He reproved kings for their sake. Do not touch my anointed ones, and do my prophets no harm. And of course, we can think specifically uh, of that instance, uh, of instances which uh, demonstrate that in his Abram's encounter with Pharaoh, and then Abraham's later encounter with Abimelech which we'll be coming up to in a few weeks. God had made this promise to Abraham, and now he extends it to Isaac, to Jacob, and to all those who would be descended from Jacob, the, the children of Israel. There's a very, very important truth here that we need to underscore. This covenant, which God made with Abraham and his descendants was an everlasting covenant which would never be broken by God. God's word is always truth. God never breaks his word. He never breaks his promise. He never breaks his covenant. Now the children of Abraham would break the covenant. They would become disobedient they would turn their hearts over to other gods, and thus they would lose the blessing of the covenant. But it's important to note that the rejection of the covenant and of the God of the covenant in no way negated the covenant. The covenant was still in existence. It's sort of like, you know, make it kind of mundane. Um, If you're Driving 85 miles an hour down the freeway, and it says 55 miles an hour, that does not negate the law. The law still says 55 miles an hour, no matter how fast you happen to be driving. God's law cannot be negated. God will never cancel it or negate it. And the covenant was still in effect for those who by faith obeyed it. And its fruit was theirs. And of course, this becomes, therefore, an exact parallel to the new covenant, the one under which we live. Christ died for all sinners. But many reject him, many do not accept his offer. Therefore, they do not receive the blessing of the new covenant. They do not receive eternal life because they have rejected God and they have rejected his covenant. But that does not, does not negate the covenant, nor does it mean God doesn't exist. I have mentioned this before. Uh, whenever I hear someone saying, you know, but I don't believe in God. And my thought is, well, whether you believe in him or not, he is real. You do not change his reality by not believing in him. It's not like Santa Claus, you know. Whether we believe or don't believe in Santa Claus determines his reality to us. If you don't believe in him, he's not only not real for us, he just isn't real because we know he's not real. But in God's case, he is real. He is the ultimate reality. And to not believe in him does not negate his existence. Thus, the Abrahamic covenant that we're talking about here in this particular passage, which is carried to its fullest ex- uh, application in the new covenant. The Abrahamic covenant is the root to our new covenant. It's, it's fulfilled in the new, t- new covenant in Jesus Christ. And, and so it's just as applicable today as it ever was. And even though the modern nation of Israel does not accept the God of their heritage, for the most part, this does not negate the Abrahamic covenant from God's perspective. God then reiterated in verse 8 of this passage, his promise to give Canaan, this land in which he was living and sojourning, he was going to give this to his descendants, to Abram, Abraham's descendants. It was going to be a perpetual inheritance. Let's turn for a moment to Stephen's words in Acts 7. Stephen, one of the seven deacons that was chosen to help carry out the ministry uh, for the apostles. And a man was chosen who was full of the Holy Spirit. And that's so obvious as you read uh, his his sermon here. But let's just read the first few verses of it in chapter 7 of Acts, verse 1. And the high priest said, Are these things so? Referring to the accusations made against Stephen. And he said, Hear me, brethren and fathers. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. And he said to him, Depart from your country and your relatives, and come into the land that I will show you. Then he (coughs) departed from the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. And from there, after his father died, God removed him into this country in which you are now living." and he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground. Yet even when he had no child, he promised that he would give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him. Notice the emphasis here. Even when he had no child, God had made this promise that it would be his and his descendants. The other end of scripture, Exodus chapter 6. Exodus 6.2. God spoke further to Moses, and he said to him, I am the Lord. And I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty. And by my name, Lord, that is Yahweh, I did not make myself known to him. Now you will find the word Yahweh does appear in Genesis. But. It does so because Moses was the author of Genesis, and Moses knew Yahweh, and therefore he used that name, but that name was not known to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He was known as El, Elohim, El Shaddai, uh, you know, God Most High, and so forth, but not as Yahweh yet. And I also established my covenant with them, to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they sojourned. And furthermore, I have heard the groanings of the sons of Israel because the Egyptians are holding them in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from their bondage. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Then I will take you for my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I will give it to you for a possession. Why? Because I am the Lord. This was the promise and God would not fail. God would remind his people of his covenant and God would bring it to reality. And as he brought them out of Egypt, He gave them the land, and that was their inheritance. God would renew this covenant many times. And as you read through the Old Testament, you find where God says, Now, you know, I am renewing this covenant with you. I am remembering my covenant. If you will walk in my ways, this land will be yours forever. This is what he kept telling them. I mean, he reminded Abram several times of the covenant and then he reminded Abram's descendants of the covenant. In fact, he will renew it specifically to Isaac. He will renew it to Jacob, and then it will be kept in perpetuity for the descendants of Jacob. But for the covenant to be personal, and that's where the rubber meets the road, each individual had to confirm this covenant in his own heart. We have to always remember The Jews or the Israelis, the ancient Hebrews, were not believers' blanket just because they were the people of God. Every single one of them had to have his or her own personal relationship with God in order to be a true spiritual descendant of Abraham. That is, of course, why evil crept in. And they began to turn their hearts away because there were those individuals who rejected the truth, just as there are people who attend evangelical Bible teaching churches in America today who reject the truth they hear, for whom it never breaks through the hardness of their heart. Their pride will not let it in, and thus they reject it. They negate the value of it for themselves personally, but they don't negate the truth in total. And of course, the ancient Israelites, when, when most of the people were walking in faith and they were doing the will of God, they experienced the general blessing too. Just as God says, "I oh, well, I give the rain on the just and the unjust alike. You know, we've prayed for rain. And it's raining on everybody out here today, whether they're a pagan or not. You know? And, and so... The ancient Israelis experienced the blessing, even if they weren't trusting, in general they experienced the blessing. You know, the peace that was in the land at the time, the prosperity that was in the land at the time. But individually, in their own heart, they did not have shalom. They did not have personal peace with God unless they had their own personal relationship with God and walked in obedience to what he proclaimed in his word. Now, Israel, you know, and I know, ultimately lost Canaan. But that didn't mean God threw out his covenant. It didn't mean the covenant was canceled. It simply means, meant that because they were not believing in the God of the covenant and walking in obedience, the fruit of the covenant was denied to them. And they were shoved out of the land. I'd like to read a passage. I didn't put it on the outline, but uh, it, from Deuteronomy 31. I'd like to read a short passage here to wind up today. Deuteronomy chapter 31, beginning at verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, the time for you to die is near. Call Joshua and present yourselves at the tent of meeting, that I may commission him. So Moses and Joshua went and presented themselves at the tent of meeting. And the Lord appeared in the tent the tent in a pillar of cloud, and the pillar of cloud stood at the doorway of the tent. And the Lord said to Moses, behold, you're about to lie down with your fathers, and this people will arise and play the harlot with the strange gods of the land, into the midst of which they are going, and will forsake me and break my covenant, which I have made with them. Great departing words, right? (laughs) You've, You've led these people, Moses, and this, but you know, it didn't shock Moses. they had been real brats all along. And, you know, at one point, remember where God says, step aside, Moses, and I'll wipe the whole crew out, and I'll make a new nation of you. And Moses interceded, of course, that's what God wanted him to do, and uh, said, no, please don't do that, because what will everybody think? Well, God put that in his heart to do. God was just putting Moses through another trial. Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day and I will forsake them and hide my face from them and they shall be consumed and many evils and troubles shall come upon them so that they will say in that day, is it not because our God is not among us that these evils have come upon us? But I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil which they will do for they will turn to other gods. Now, therefore, write this song for yourselves and teach it to the sons of Israel. Put it on their lips in order that this song may be a witness for me against the sons of Israel. For when I bring them into the land flowing with milk and honey, which I swore to their fathers, and they have eaten and are satisfied and become prosperous, then they will turn to other gods and serve them and spurn me and break my covenant. Then it shall come about, when many evils and troubles have come upon them, that this song will testify before them as a witness, for it shall not be forgotten from the lips of their descendants. For I know their intent, which they are developing today, before I have brought them into the land which I swore. And then we have the song of Moses, which recounts the glories of God and all of his blessing in the next chapter. But the point is, God knew that they would violate the covenant and that he was going to give them the land anyway, but that they would lose the land ultimately. For thousands of years, they would lose the land. And of course, there has been a partial reoccupation of the land, and there's a lot of debate about what that means, as you well know. Uh, Whether that means fulfillment of prophecy or as others say, it has nothing to do with it because the Israelis over there, they don't honor God at all. Well, whatever we say, um, you know, God is at work, and, and God is bringing something about that is, that is great and powerful. And his covenant has not been negated. It still is in existence. And this, this, this passage that we just read, that God gave to Moses, I think is such a powerful expression of the fact that, well, that 20th verse is is such a key verse. When they become prosperous and they're satisfied, then they're going to chase after other gods. The greatest threat to the church today is prosperity. Because when the church prospers, then we don't need God and we can do it on our own. That's why I think God often keeps the church poor. (laughs) <laughs> not spiritually poor, but poor in other areas, because such prosperity tends to turn the heart away from God. At least it did for Israel, and I think we can show certain times in church history when that has happened also. And so God will bring about his plan and his purpose in his time for us as he did for Israel. Well, next week we'll look uh, at the next passage, uh, beginning with the ninth verse, at the seal, the sign of this covenant. Mm-hmm.